My sermon this morning is simple. It has a very simple point. You can see the point in the title of my sermon. The gift of marriage. Or marriage is a gift from God. I think all of us need to hear this message. Because all of us live in a time when, when marriage is ridiculed, mocked, devalued. We've all made jokes about marriage. We've watched television shows that demean marriage. We've seen books that question the sanctity of marriage. One such book that I came across was entitled The Four D's of Marriage. Depression, Despair, Drink, and Divorce. I think we need to value marriage because it is a gift. And so this morning, this sermon is not an attack against those who might demean marriage. Otherwise, we'd be attacking ourselves. Rather, it's a reminder of this wonderful gift that God has given to us. This, this valuable gift, this precious gift that God has given to us. My prayer is very simple this morning. That all of us would heed the words of Hebrews 13, 4 which says, let marriage be held in honor among all. That word in honor is, let it be treasured. And it's the kind of treasure that is of gold or silver. Let us treasure it. Let all of us treasure it. Let us value it. Let us fight for it. Let us protect it. Let us see that it is a wonderful gift from God. That's my prayer this morning. Marriage is a gift from God. Now to help us, we're going to be looking at Genesis 2 beginning with verse 18, and we're going to be reading through it. And as you're turning there, I want you to, to think in your mind of what happened so far in Genesis 1. And I know that all of you have read Genesis 1, because every person in America, I'm convinced of this, has at least at one time decided to read the Bible. <laughs> and they got to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, maybe got to the flood, some quit there. Others got all the way through Genesis and quit in Exodus. Some people got through just Exodus and got to Leviticus and said, forget it. <laughs> so we've all been there. So what happens in Genesis 1? Day 1, everything God creates is good. So day 1, God creates the light, and it is good. Day 2, God creates the, the sky and the sea, and it is Day 3, God creates the land and vegetation, and it is Day 4, God creates the sun, the moon, the stars, and it is Not bad. Not bad. No, bad answer. <laughs> it's good. Ryan, we're kicking you out. <laughs> Day five, God creates for the sky and the sea birds and fish, and it is good. Day six, God creates land, animals, um, people. It is good. Everything God creates is good. And so in chapter 2, verse 18, these words should jump out at you because we see the very first thing in all of creation that's not good. Chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. In all of creation, the thing that is not good is that man is alone. Here, Adam has it easy. He has a perfect relationship with God. He's living in a perfect place. You would think that would be enough. But no. 
It is not good for man to be alone. Now, I have to admit, every time I read these words, I can't help but think of my daughters. And so far, both daughters have worked this very same. They know that it's not good for a person to be alone. Because when we try to put them down to bed in their room by themselves, we hear wailing and crying. And now Sydney knows the word no. And we hear it, no, no. Every night and every afternoon, the crib's rattling and shaking. No! Okay. Why? Because she knows it's not good for man to be alone. She knows that. Within her being, she knows it's not good to be alone. And so she protests and kicks and screams. Abby did it, and we know Brennan will do it as well. It's not good for man to be alone. That's exactly what God's saying. It's not good for man to be alone. Man needs a companion. But not any companion will do. In fact, it says Adam needs a suitable companion, a suitable helper. Listen again. The Lord God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, in Hebrew, that word suitable helper is one who fills up what's lacking in the other. So Adam needs what's missing. He needs a companion. He needs not just any companion, but that companion, that one, who will meet that need. That's exactly what the book of Ecclesiastes is, is telling us when it says, two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their work. If one falls, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered. Two can defend themselves. The cord of three strands is not quickly broken. It is not good for man to be alone. God knows this. God says this. Man needs a suitable helper. But it's a funny thing as you're reading through chapter 2 of what happens next. Because you'd think the very next thing God would do would simply then bring Eve. But that's not what happens. Listen to what God does next. Verses 19 and 20. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. That just seems so odd to me. Here God says, not good for man to be alone. And the very next thing he does is he brings all these animals up to Adam. And Adam then says, well, that's a monkey and that's a giraffe. But says, none of these are suitable helpers. What in the world is God up to? Well, I'm convinced it's this. God was showing Adam what will never be a suitable helper. By bringing all these animals up to Adam, Adam has to realize that in all of creation, there's still something missing. These animals are not suitable helpers. They're important, they're wonderful, but these things, even though created by God, even though good, even though you can have a meaningful relationship with, these things are not the suitable helper. Now, this is important for all of us because because. There are many things in this world that are good, 
things to be enjoyed, things to have a relationship with. But it doesn't mean, things created by God, but it doesn't mean that these things are suitable helpers. And this is important because the animals, for instance, and I think about this as people especially get older, but not just older, people have these wonderful relationships with animals. God's not saying don't have them. That's why God brings them. Adam has this one, he names them. There's a relationship there. But these things are not suitable helpers. God has something more for Adam. Not less. It's not saying get rid of your pets. I'm not. It's just that God has something more. Now, as I think about animals and relationships, I'm reminded of a lousy story that you're going to hate, but I'm going to say it anyway. There is a, a woman who came up to a Lutheran pastor and said, Pastor, Pastor, I love my dog. I want my dog baptized. Pastor thought for a moment, he said, we don't baptize animals in the Lutheran church. <laughs> and so she said, oh, well, that's a shame because I was going to donate $10,000 to the church. <laughs> and he said, is that a Lutheran dog? <laughs> I told you it was lousy. <laughs> animals are good. It's good to have relationships with them. They're not the suitable helper. Now, there's also things in this world created by God that are good in themselves, but then we abuse and we mess up and we mess up. Alcohol, good thing created by God. And there's Germans out there, so you're all saying amen. However, <laughs> when you're, when you, this, this good thing is never that suitable helper. It cannot fill up what's missing inside. To turn to that, to depend on that, to think that that's going to be what's going to get you through. No, because it won't, because it's never meant to be. By bringing all these animals to, God, to Adam, Adam's able to enjoy them, able to have a relationship, able to name them. But these are not the suitable helpers. Not because these things are bad, but because God has something better. And so that verse 20, it says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Why? Because God has something better. And so let's see what God has to bring to Adam. And you know this story, but it's so beautiful. Let's, let's keep going. 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of, the rib, Adam's, one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made the woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. I've always wondered why God creates. Poor baby. <laughs> I have one at home that I'm just like, I know how this goes. I always wondered why God created Eve this way. With Adam, Adam gets to be made by dirt and forms up and whew, God breathes the breath in, in him. Okay, that's simple, that's nice, but why create Eve this way? Why go through all this work? Why make her this way? What's God doing when he, when he puts Adam asleep? What's God doing when he pierces his side? What's God doing when he builds Eve? Literally, the Hebrew word is belt. And I like that because I think, you know, if you ever thought, man, that woman's belt. That's Hebrew. 
But here's the better thing. All women are built. Hebrew, that's what this thing is. So all women are built. Built by God. I, the whole week, I'm so sorry. This whole week, I didn't want to put it in here. And I didn't put it in here. But, but that's belt. Adam, God, belt Eve. What's God doing there? Why this special way? Why the darkness? Why the side rib? What's God doing? This is what God's doing. First, by covering it with, with darkness, a deep sleep. Literally in Hebrew, it's almost death. By covering this thing with death, by bringing Adam to a place of darkness, he covers this whole thing in mystery. Why? So that Adam doesn't know all the details. So that Adam can't make this for himself. So Adam can only receive Eve as a gift. That's why when God brings her down... God is the father bringing the bride down to, the, to Adam. He's giving a gift to Adam. By covering it in darkness, Adam doesn't know how it's made, so Adam can only receive her as a gift, as a precious gift from God, as a gracious gift from God, as a special treasure from God, something that isn't found in creation, something that he cannot make, but only God can provide. Well, husbands, wives, think about your relationship with your spouse. Isn't that exactly what happened? I mean, in your mind, you couldn't have figured out how this person would come into your life. But God had given you a gift. God had made this person, built this person, brought this person to your life in, in wonderful ways. A gift. Adam can only receive her as a gift. Now, what about this pierced side? What's that about? Well, this is important because God made Eve out of the same substance of Adam, which means Eve is not inferior. Eve is truly this other half. He's, Eve is made of the same stuff, the same matter, not lowly material. So Adam can't say, well, God sure made you out of a bad side. He can't do that. God made you, Eve, out of the very same stuff he made Adam. He made it out of the same stuff to be the other half, to be the one who fills up, the suitable helper. And that's why when Adam sees her, he goes, wow! And then says these wonderful words. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, in Hebrew, for she was taken out of man, Ish. Ish and Isha, the same stuff, the same matter, made by God, given to her, given to Adam as a gift, to be treasured, to be valued, to be taken care of. Oh, all of us need to, to get a vision of, of what God's doing in marriage. Because God's giving to us a gift, a wonderful gift. I can't help but, as I'm speaking to those who are married, you can, you can recall when you first started courting your spouse, you had all this energy and all this passion to make good impressions. And you, you invested your time and, you know, guys, you brought flowers. And I know Jamie was very crafty in bringing me all these desserts that just lured me in through my tongue. 
But there's this passion and love. And then what happens? You get married. You have this person. You, there's security there. You've made vows. You know each other's secrets. So you're going, you're not going anywhere. I know too much about you. <laughs> but then you start spending your energy and desire on work. Why? Because you're trying to provide for a family. And so all this energy and all this passion, all this is going towards that for a good reason. But then you start providing. And what happens? Well, you want to give more energy and passion. You start giving towards kids and towards hobbies and everything else. And, and before you know it, it's 20, 30 years down the road. And, and all this great passion, this wonderful gift is a little tarnished. Because you've taken it for granted. Well, these words call us back to, to see marriage. As a gift to fight for, to treasure, to love, to experience, to know that God has, has blessed us with this gift. God has worked in mysterious ways to bring about our spouse. And so fight for it, protect it. In fact, Jesus' words in, in our gospel reading, when, he, when he, he speaks so harsh against divorce, why? Because he, he knows the hardness of our hearts. And so he's saying, look, if you're not going to value it and enjoy the gift, well, I'm going to speak a hard word so you might not be tempted to leave it. But that's not why we should stay in a marriage, because of this hard word. Instead, it's because it's a gift given by good, a good God to each one of us to love and to treasure and to cherish. So fight for it. Treasure it. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And yet there's still a deeper word, a deeper truth for us. Because this gift of marriage isn't just about our marriages. It's meant to point farther. It's meant to point to Jesus. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says these words. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In other words, this gift of marriage is meant to point us to what Jesus did on the cross for us. Think about it. Jesus is the one who gives marriage its deepest meaning. It's not good for man to be alone. Well, how much more alone is humanity alone separated from God? Sin has separated us from him. We need a suitable helper to fill up what's lacking in us. We lack righteousness. Jesus has to come to give it. And it has to be Jesus' righteousness because there's nothing on earth, nothing that we can do, no good deeds, no good thoughts, no good wishes that can earn that righteousness. So it has to come from God. Just as the animals were not suitable helpers for Adam, our deeds are not suitable helpers for righteousness. No, it has to be God's work. Next, look at the procedure in which God makes us righteous. God brought death, deep sleep, upon his son Jesus, that second Adam. On the cross, darkness covered Jesus' final hours to shroud that work in mystery. Like Adam, Jesus was pierced in his side in order to build for him a bride. A bride that is not inferior to Jesus, but one that has received all that he has. A bride that he has named, that has been named by Jesus as his very own. 
And the only way Jesus could do this was to leave his father's side and to be joined with his bride so that the two should become one. So that in the waters of baptism, when it says you've been united with Christ, you've been united to his death. And so that in the Lord's Supper, we take a meal that points forward to that wedding feast with our bride Christ. Or we're the bride with our groom Christ. Marriage, then, is a gift from God to be enjoyed, yes, but to point us to Jesus to see what he has done in uniting himself to us, leaving the Father's side, making us righteous, giving us our name, Christian, so that we'd be with him forever. I want to end by sharing a story I often um, share at weddings, but it does relate a pastor wrote these words. He said, I once met a very old woman who could hardly move because of, her, of old age, and yet her face was the most radiant I'd ever seen. I wondered to myself, what was the secret to this woman's happiness? I did not have to wait long to discover her secret, for soon I saw her husband come up to her. As I saw these two speaking to each other with their eyes hanging on each other, I knew at once that she had been loved by her husband. It was as though she was the stone that was lying in the sun for years and years, absorbing all its radiant warmth, and now was reflecting back cheerfulness, warmth, and serenity. May all our marriages have that, but even more. May we be pointed forward to that day that the Apostle Paul speaks of, when we will be face to face with Christ. And there we will be changed, and there we will reflect his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.